Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. On our last three podcasts, we have been focused on the harshest sentence given to an offender, with the exception of the death penalty. That is life without parole, also known as death by incarceration. We have spent time with two men who received that sentence, but after serving three decades apiece, they are free. We also spoke to Asla Sharma Pokharel, who has filed a formal complaint to the United Nations regarding this sentence, viewed by many as cruel and unusual punishment. And today we will speak with Professor Rachel Lopez from Drexel University in Philadelphia. Her focus is state responsibility for mass abuse and transitional justice, which I'm going to ask her to define. She has served as a commissioner on the Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission, having been appointed by Governor Tom Wolfe. It is good to have you with us today. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I was not familiar with the term transitional justice. So before we delve into the article you wrote and the topic, um, can you explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a field of study that looks at what are the mechanisms, both judicial and non-judicial, that help societies recover from periods of mass abuse, usually perpetrated by the state. And so it can take the form of trials, as it often does, criminal trials. It can take the form of truth commissions, like many are familiar with the Truth Commission in South Africa, as an example. It can take the reform of um, reparations. Um, And most importantly, it is meant to guarantee non-repetition. So in other words, that never again will these atrocities occur. So it's the set of processes and solutions and methods for ensuring that the most uh, terrible atrocities that have occurred across the globe do not repeat themselves. Unfortunately, that is not always the case, right? That's right, yeah. So now, as one of the three authors of the article uh, entitled Redeeming Justice, which appeared in Northwestern's Law Review in October of 2021, please expand on this idea of the right to redemption, which I saw as the core concept of the article. Absolutely. So fundamentally, this is a response to the U.S.'s perspective on life without parole. So our U.S. Supreme Court has essentially said that those that receive life without parole sentences are irredeemable. In other words, that they lack any capacity for change. And so part of our article is a response to this, drawing from really the example of Ghani and Rel, who you've already spoke with, it's a fundamental belief that all human beings have the capacity for change and that this should be reflected in the law. Mm, that's great. So now um, we talked a little with uh, Ghani and Rel, and I do encourage my listeners to go back to the first and second uh, podcast. Um, 
could you uh, explain the Right to Redemption Committee? We, we, we touched on it with them, but I, I'd like your perspective on what that committee is. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, Ghani and Rel are best suited to explain the committee. But part of what I understand the committee to have done is really reflect on their life experiences and in, in essence, it's a resistance to this categorization of them as irre irredeemable. Mm. It's basically a movement that developed behind bars to say we are not incapable of change, that we are able to atone for the harm that we've caused, that we want to atone for the harm that we caused, and that this sentence is, in essence, portraying us as a perpetual threat to our communities when we believe that actually we can help to address the violent crime that we're seeing here in Philadelphia very rampantly. Um, and I've seen that firsthand in the work that Ghani and Rel are now doing on the outside. Ghani in particular is involved, I'm sure you talked to him about restorative justice yes, and the efforts that he's making uh, really to ensure healing within our communities. And this is essentially the mission of the right to redemption, this idea that only by truly atoning and, and healing the communities that, that, that Ghani and Rel have harmed, can they truly atone for the harms that they've caused. And in essence, you know, they, I think what is so incredible about the right to redemption committee is they conceptualize this idea of the right to redemption and they framed it in human rights language. And ultimately, it's language that actually has been adopted the world over. So in the European Court of Human Rights and many constitutional courts across the world, similarly reflect the same idea that, that the Right to Redemption Committee elevated, which is human beings have the capacity to change and that sentences should not reflect a permanent state of being that that actually is an affront to our very nature as human beings and is a denial of hope. That's great. I, I wanted to hear your, you know, your thoughts. Um, what, um, well, here's a question. The, the United States Supreme Court, have they ever discussed the idea of redemption? That's an incredible question. Timely question because, in <laughs> fact, last year, um, the very question that is the heart of redeeming justice was actually asked by Justice Samuel Alito in oral argument. Mm -hmm. So he asked uh, essentially the question that we answer in redeeming justice, which is Do you think that there are any human beings who are not capable of redemption? Mm -hmm. He did so in the context of a case called Jones v. Mississippi. And in this case, the Supreme Court was asked to decide whether in order to sentence a child, a juvenile, to life without parole, the court must decide that that child is incapable of redemption or in the words of the court, permanently incorrigible. In other words, lacking any ability to rehabilitate themselves. And um, interestingly, this builds on uh, a long-standing uh, jurisprudence uh, case law that exists at the Supreme Court to really evaluate life without parole 
sentences. And part of the really, I think, challenging part about this case was that the court essentially dodges the question. So they didn't want to say that state courts have to decide that children are incapable of change. They said experts can't do this. So how could we expect the court to do this? Echoing language actually in Roper v. Simmons, which is a case, case that said that sentencing juveniles to death sentences is unconstitutional. But instead of doing the same thing in this case, instead of saying that life without parole sentences represent cruel and unusual punishment, the court sort of goes sideways and dodges mm -hmm. the question and says that is not required in order to sentence a child to life without parole. And that rather, as long as youth and immaturity can be considered by the court, the courts uh, are able to hand down sentences which essentially condemn children to die behind bars. Well, um, Asra, before you, um, referred to several rulings by the court, um, very, very familiar to me, um, you know, the one in 2005 about executing children and uh, um, non-homicide life without parole sentences, mm -hmm. and we know that. So, you know, the court can be what should I say, responsive to, to that. And we also know about the teen brain and the science behind that, that at 15, you are far, far from mature and far from understanding the consequences of your actions. So I guess in some ways, the U.S. Supreme Court is somewhat um, in tune, somewhat. But I, I'd like to see them, you know, be more so. Um, so as a nation, you mentioned that we're an outlier uh, in its use of life without parole sentences. Most countries in Western Europe, according to my research, allow offenders with life sentences to appear before the, the parole board between 12 and 25 years of their sentences. And I was talking to Asa about this. Mm -hmm. um, and life without parole has been uh, completely abolished by countries like Mexico, Spain, Norway, Serbia, and, and Portugal. But interestingly, not Holland. I didn't know that until I, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we did talk about um, the idea of reevaluating a sentence um, in a specific amount of time to determine, are you ready to come out? And have you, in a sense, um, uh, grown and taken responsibility for what you, you did? Um, the 66-page the article that you wrote, uh, Redeeming Justice, you co-wrote, um, has been read by many now. How, how has it been received by other academics? Yeah, and first I just want to also say that it's not just Europe who have said that life without parole, where there's no possibility of review, is cruel and unusual punishment. Latin America is considered almost an LWAP free zone. There are very yeah. few countries in Latin America who have life without parole sentences. Um, and also there are many jurisdictions in Africa um, that have said that life without parole with no possibility of review and release is cruel and unusual punishment. So we are an outlier, not just in comparison to Europe, but really ac across the globe. 
And that's very significant for the purposes of our own constitutional interpretation because we use a standard which is called the evolving standard of decency. And in the past, the court has looked to global jurisdictions for guidance about what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. So these mm. cases that we've been talking about have they're not sort of far-flung decisions that don't have meaning here. They have real legal meaning in the courts, or they should have real legal meaning in a court of law in the U.S. Mm. Um, so that's why I think that the, the human rights frame and this comparative constitutional analysis in our article is really critical. Now, you asked me about the reception of this mm. article, and it's been, you know, quite interesting, uh, I will say, to see how academics have received this, other legal scholars like me. And I must say that when we wrote this article, I didn't even know if it would be published. It was mm. in many ways entirely out of the box in terms mm. of legal scholarship by co-authoring with Ghani and Rel and making legal arguments built on the movements that they were, that they've been a part of for years. It really, um, I think, broke the mold in some ways in terms of legal scholarship. And so I wasn't really sure whether it would be read at all. But as you said, it's been really championed by a lot of people. So we won um, the, the basically best article award by mm -hmm. an, an international organization called the Law and Society Association, essentially for exemplary scholarship. Um, and we've we've been invited to give many talks uh, around the world. And so in many ways, it's been positively received. But I have to say that it also has encountered many skeptics that have mm -hmm. been talking about how our scholarship isn't objective. It's not neutral. It shouldn't be considered legal scholarship because it's more akin to advocacy. And I think that the next phase of Ghani and I's work is going to be talking about why this type of scholarship is not only legitimate, but is urgently needed to address the problems that exist in our world. We need to understand, essentially, part of the way I understand this is that and, and redeeming justice is a perfect example of this. Of there are stories that judges tell themselves when they're making these decisions. So in the context of a case like Jones, courts are telling themselves, well, there are some people that we believe deserve this sense because they are not capable of change. And that's a narrative that is built in part on the sort of super predator language that many of these judges became lawyers in. And so we need to really challenge these narratives that exist underneath the law. And that's exactly what Redeeming Justice did, drawing from the lived experience of Ghani and Rel. And many people see that as revolutionary and urgently needed. Others critique that as outside of the academic enterprise. I think that all academics are informed by their understanding of how the world works. That's how they make decisions. And that's a very narrow view of the world. And so part of what we're trying to accomplish here is to broaden the mindset and the understanding of the world so that when judges are making decisions, they're not just thinking about their own understanding of the world. They're really engaging with people that are directly affected by these laws. And that's the methodology we've adopted here. And what I think is fascinating is um, 
Rel at the time of the publication of the article was still locked up. Correct. He only just got out in July, which I, I just find incredible that he seems like he's been out a long time, but not, not so. So yeah, and our article was actually raised by the district attorney as a basis for his um, commutation. So it really real world effects. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. He didn't mention it. That's, that's great. I'm glad you added that. Um, and I'm also glad you added um, to my list of countries. I, I actually wasn't aware about Latin America and Africa being more uh, sympathetic and, um, you know, against the uh, the harsh census. So thank you for that. Um, what changes in the law do you hope will take place as a result of your article? So I really think this comes to the heart of what I was describing before. So we have what's, you know, the Eighth Amendment, right? So the Eighth Amendment of our U.S. Constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. And it's based on this understanding or this concept of what constitutes human dignity. So what at our essence as human beings is impermittable? In other words, what do we think that we would never subject our fellow human beings to? And the part that I think that is so important here is that most countries the vast majority of countries around the world have said that this amounts to cruel and unusual punishment, that this is an affront to human dignity. And that's really what I, I hope our article will achieve as well, a reassessment, a reevaluation of what is important to us as a society in treating our fellow citizens. What do we want to believe about ourselves? Do we want to believe that our fellow citizens are irredeemable? Do we want to believe that all human beings are not capable of change? And what does it say about our psyche to believe that and the way we treat one another? And so it comes to, you know, even though this is a legal question, it's also, I think, a moral and a philosophical question about how we want to interact collectively with one another and how we want to understand human nature at its essence. And so part of the goal, right, is, is starting with life without parole sentences and the death penalty as well, right? Any sentence that by its nature says that human beings are incapable of change should be considered cruel and unusual and unconstitutional. But of course, that's just a starting point. If we believe that all human beings are capable of change, our criminal legal system would look much different than it does today. It's also how we treat one another. Mm -hmm. As do we treat them as um, human beings that um, should be treated with dignity? And and I I have uh, seen films about just like to pick Germany as an example, um, and how very differently uh, the guards speak about the the prisoners that they are uh, supposed to be taking care of or supervising. And it's a very different philosophy, very, very different. And I often wonder when I read things like that, how come we are so different? Why why are our prisons so filled with violence and ugliness? And I think it does begin with the philosophy of how we treat one another. So thanks for, for 
for that. Um, so we we have a little bit of time left, and I wanted to ask you uh, to tell us a little bit about your role on the sentencing commission. What what is that that you you do on that commission? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm no longer a commissioner on the Sentencing Commission. I was for four years. Okay. The Pennsylvania General Assembly actually removed all. Uh, I was uh, appointed by Tom Wolf, the right. governor of Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania General Assembly removed all of his uh, appointees. So okay. he is no longer able to appoint um, people to this commission, which I think is a real shame because it was such an incredible sort of inner branch initiative, and now it is only representing one branch of government. Um, the Sentencing Commission basically sets the sentencing guidelines and sentencing policy for the state of Pennsylvania and the counties. And so there is basically a sentencing matrix. So it takes into account your prior record and the severity of the crime to give an assessment of how long your sentence should be. It's essentially a calculation um, that helps judges determine what sentences to, to, to dole out um, in, in courts of law. The other thing that we spent a lot of time on and was very controversial was a risk assessment tool, which is meant to uh, basically look at static factors, factors that don't change, and try to determine someone's risk of recidivism. That's tricky, I would guess, right? Very, very tricky. I was um, not, uh, I would say, not the biggest fan of <laughs> this form of assessment because it was not, speaking of, you know, the capacity for change, it was basing determinations on things that, uh, you know, are, are fundamentally unfair in my view. At, at a certain time, and this was my big fight, it included the number of arrests and I worked as a lawyer in New York um, in a case challenging unconstitutionally racially biased stops and frisk that black and brown communities are disproportionately um, arrested and frisked by, by law enforcement. And so I feared that it would be a racially biased test. And I actually made a motion for the staff to evaluate. And they came back and they said, yes, it would be a racially biased test if we were to use arrest. And so that was then taken out, which mm. I saw as my biggest contribution while I was on the commission, but is also part of the reason I think that the General Assembly removed my seat. <laughs> so in our last few minutes, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to add as we close our interview? Yeah, I think that we, as, you know, sort of getting to these bigger moral and philosophical questions, you mentioned how it reflects how we treat each other. And I think that there's a piece of that that is fundamentally intertwined with that, because in some ways, if you treat someone as if they are incapable of change and they lack human dignity, does that really encourage a society where we are caring for one another and you sort of reflecting on the violence that we see in our society at the moment, how much of that is a result of the way that people like Relangani are treated 
when they enter the criminal legal system. And that's, I think, something that as a society we need to grapple with more robustly than we have at this moment. Absolutely. Well, I must say thank you, big thank you for introducing our listeners to Ghani, to Rel, two remarkable men, and Asa. Um, and thank you for your time and effort in helping me put this podcast together. It was it was a challenge juggling, uh, you know, all the guests. But I think we needed to hear from everyone, and and we did, which was thank really thank wonderful. You so so thank you. So just to give people a little peek ahead, next time on pursuing justice, we will meet two very fascinating women, both of whom head up college programs for people in prison. One who heads up a program at Goucher College, which is in Maryland, and one at San Quentin in California, who received uh, a, I believe it was a humanities award from President Obama. And um, just amazing the, uh, the programs that they are heading up, offering people in prison a wonderful chance. And, and certainly I see that in both Ghani and Rel, how their minds are have been expanded um, even though they were locked up. So it is possible to, to grow and to change, of course, in, in prison. So thank you, Rachel, again, for all your, your efforts. Uh, I think this was a wonderful series that we just completed. And thanks to you for that. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Please join us next time on Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You've been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.